I had talked to him a couple months ago, and it had been a while, but because um, we, we 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 spoke off and on over over many years, and he, um, I, I'm not joking. You'll get this, and probably listeners will too. When when Billy Freakin says to you, "I don't know," I think Exorcist could have been better. Um, <laughs> I, I knew something was not right, and he seemed he seemed kind of subdued, and he talked about getting lunch eventually, but it just it felt like it was not was not to be. I'm glad he finished his film, but I, I thought we should because he's he was he was a cut above. I would say. Yeah, I think he was a seminal figure in seventies filmmaking, and 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 you know he had he had his he had his disappointments, and uh, he also had his persona, which uh, I observed uh, firsthand when I was at Warner Brothers. He was making a picture called uh, Deal of the Century, which was not uh, ultimately became one of his lesser lights. But in order to deal with what he thought was studio interference, he seemed to go out of his way to make them think he was crazy. And they were actually afraid to deal with him. And I thought, boy, that's, that's really a great ploy. <laughs> so I was never able to pull that off. Yeah, he would do stuff like, I was just, you know, there's been just this, this wave of stuff that's been coming out and I, I'd forgotten so much of it. There was a great interview with him on the uh, To Live and Die in LA disc where I think the statute of limitations has passed. So, he openly acknowledges that they hired one of the greatest or the greatest counterfeiter alive to work on the film. And then that he, Billy spent several years, at least uh, passing off $20 bills. <laughs> 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 and there's another one about him talking about going to a gay bar during cruising. I think, is he wearing, he's like wearing he, like, a he, wore, he, he, and, he wore a jockstrap <laughs> to go there because that was the, that was the attire. Yeah. And so he directed wearing a jockstrap. Yeah. And he's just, he's doing research and he's like, yeah, they're all better looking than me. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And when he, when he, when he, when he did his, uh, uh, his Alfred Hitchcock episode, uh, he did one of the last ones that I did for the Alfred Hitchcock hour and, uh, Hitchcock berated him because he wasn't wearing a tie, which was the, accepted attire for people who worked on that show. And uh, so after he won his, uh, his Oscar for, uh, for uh, French Connection, he apparently was coming back from the podium with his Oscar and he passed Hitchcock and he said, he pointed to his clip-on tie and he said, how do you like the tie, Hitch? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, no, he was a character. I, I, um, uh, it was amazing. I got, I got to know him I can't remember if we talked about it on this episode or not, so it'll be brief, but I, I got to know him when um, Grant Moninger, who knew I was a huge fan of Sorcerer, he knew I was a huge fan of Sorcerer from my trailers from Hell Commentary. And he asked if I would like to do a Q&A with Willie at the Arrow about it. And they had, and this was at the time before Sorcerer had gotten kind of rediscovered. It's like 2011. And um, they had arranged it double feature with Sorcerer and The Exorcist in which The Exorcist played second, knowing that that meant a whole lot of people who had never seen Sorcerer would show up. And I got to meet Billy for the very first time. In fact, I was just going through some stuff and I found a great picture of the two of us and it's uh, meeting for the first time. I've got my Sorcerer poster with me. And he was effusive. He would not shut up about how much he loved History of Violence. And I'm sitting there going, I need to talk to him. We have five minutes to discuss what we're going to talk about out there. And then he... Um, Proceeded for like an hour and a half to just stand on his, you know, he wanted to do the Q&A on his two feet. He did not want to sit down. And it was an amazing thing. And, and watching him get to see an audience love that movie, which had had such a troubled history and that he had spent many years kind of, I think, disowning um, 
was was kind of lovely. Had you run into it? He was sort of my introduction to that thing where some directors think that if they've got a movie that did not do well, they just write it off as bad. No, I, I, uh, I didn't. That wasn't my experience with him. But uh, he, he was always very nice to me. He called me up out of the blue one day and said, you know, there's something I think you'd be interested in. Like, you know, it's not something that, and I understand he did that with a lot of other directors, but he was very supportive. Oh, trying to push material or get you, turn you on to Yeah, a no, he was project? just, he was, he, well, that's he, was, fantastic. he was very interested in other people's work. Uh, and our, he was one of our first uh, gets for our show. And uh, it was a, it yeah. was a, it well, was a big I, yeah. deal. Yeah. And um, he was, he was, as usual, uh, very voluble and very opinionated. Uh, to the yep. point where I didn't actually challenge you about some of the things that I thought were like, oh, I'm not going to argue with him about Exorcist Two, which he, which, which he, which he hated, and then, <laughs> then admitted, admitted oh, yeah. it only seemed five minutes on. Uh, and and also the his, the reconstruction of the other side of the wind. He was very adamant about because he's a huge fan of Citizen like Kane, and he didn't like the idea this bunch of film had been reconstituted by other people. But um, but he was a he was a fascinating. And, um, yeah, really, you know, uh, he was uh, one of the reasons I think that our, um, our podcast took off was because he was uh, one of the biggest name guests. Yeah. And he came on and made some great noise for us. Um, yeah, I think I, I just have two little things that, that I loved, um, my experience with him. And one was, uh, apparently he and he and Harlan Ellison had had a huge falling out, um, uh, at Versailles. Yeah, well, <laughs> and uh, uh, but the fight they were working on an adaptation of a story of Harlan's. I guess Billy was with Jean Moreau, and this is just a world that doesn't exist anymore. The two of them got into an argument about sorcerer, apparently, it was the final straw. And I think only monumental egomaniacs who have earned their egomania, who can back <laughs> it up, could have a fight like this. Because the argument was, and I've heard it from both sides, they both kind of confirmed it is that Harlan would not shut the fuck up about how much he loved Sorcerer and that it was Billy's best movie. And Billy was not having it. It, it just annoyed the shit out of him. And the two of them almost came to blows and didn't speak for many, many years. And I, I got to because I uh, finally reconnected the two of them over the phone and they were both very chuffed to be able to go back to, to talking again. And uh, they had forgiven each other for the terrible <laughs> insult of, you know, <laughs> arguing over his masterpiece. And then, uh, and my favorite one, and I only tell people and I can't, I will not tell here, but he, he once, uh, we went to lunch once at a very, uh, it can't have been Chasen's because Chasen's been gone so long, but a very, very respectable, very quiet Hollywood restaurant. Um, and his table was in the middle and I walked in, I'm like with Mr. Friedkin and everybody goes, who's that sitting there with Billy Friedkin? And, we were talking and he proceeded to tell a story about the making of one of his movies that got louder and louder and louder. And the punchline of the story was so graphically obscene. Um, I'm not even sure I could say it on this podcast. <laughs> they might, the FCC might start monitoring podcasts, but he said it's so loud in this quiet restaurant. And I remember just like turning beat regs. I knew everyone in the restaurant is looking at us and they're just like, Jesus Christ. Um, and then the best thing about the story recently confirmed, not true. What he told me turned out not to be true. Oh, well, he was a storyteller. <laughs> he was a storyteller. He was a great one. 
But, um, but yeah, but people have brought up, I mean, you know, I, I, I was shocked because I, I literally, um, I mean, you've, you've been to my house, you know, I have these two posters in my uh, uh, living room. I have these great pop-out frames and I, I switch them out every now and then. And I've had the same posters in there forever for a long time. And I had some friends coming over the other night and I was like, let me put in some fresh posters. And uh, um, for, for various reasons, I decided I should put in Charlie Varick and Sorcerer. And, and I'm not joking, Joe. I put in Sorcerer. I put in Charlie Varick, pop, pop, pop. I put in Sorcerer, pop, pop, pop. Went and sat down on my computer, and the first thing I saw was the billion died. And I haven't uh, chosen that. Yeah, well, <laughs> great. Thanks. Um, but, uh, but so many people have, have kind of posted our episode and talked about uh, how wonderful it was. And um, we thought we should just represent it, just just for shits and giggles. But anyway, uh, here's, 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 what, here's what he said to us in what year? 1943, folks. <laughs> when we started the podcast. That's right. Enjoy this. I don't know. Billy said he doesn't want any holds barred, and so I don't know. Yeah, no, let's not do any. To grab him? Kicking. I don't know. I'm, I'm, no said. ass kissing. <laughs> no soft bullshit. We don't do that shit. Dialogue. Man. We don't do that. Here. I mentioned oh. it only in passing. <laughs> I, I do want to because I looked. You know, you all sort of check to see if there's okay? something I don't know. Are you? Um, uh, are you still doing Frank the Machine? No. No. Oh, okay. No. I, I, it says on IMDb that you were you were uh, no, the that, latest person. They on called. It and, I never committed to do that I, that thing's been kicking you can't forever. believe half of what you read no and it just said you were thinking of doing it with walton goggins who's a dear friend of mine and one of the great actors absolutely and, not uh, but <laughs> I have, I, he's very good he's right, right yeah <laughs> um but uh are we it, all uh does this sound okay you sure okay we're good we're good for levels um let me give you a mic test Is that too loud? Perfect. Okay. And again, anytime you want to take a break or just let us. Yeah, let's take a recording. break. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, should, we, I don't know, should we just jump right in? If you're normal? Well, we that's what we usually do. Because we have... can't use half this chit chat. No, just record. Bad uh, but you haven't said I. You're recording, right? Uh, true, true. Right. I've been We're working on recording it. I've been working on it. Uh, Joe gets on the fact that I So say, I just happen to be drop, dropping into the neighborhood. Driving by crossroads of the world. Yeah. And, uh, as people do. Uh, as people do. That's right. Um, uh, we have with us today. Um, well, you said no. How am I supposed to introduce you without blowing a little Just smoke here's up Bill Freak. Yeah, it's Billy Freakin. Yeah, it's game. the movies that made me. It's Joe Dante. I'm John. Boom. Music goes here. We play some music, and then uh, and then we say something nice about Bill. <laughs> no, he doesn't want us to. Oh, no, I don't to... want you to say well, anything I'm gonna, nice. I'm going well, think... to say something anyway. Yeah. Uh, one of one of my favorite things that you ever did that I don't think enough people know about is that episode of the New Twilight. Zone yes. Oh my God. In the diner. Fucking night terrifying nightcrawler with the the Vietnam vets. The Vietnam vets coming yeah, through the that diner. That is that is an amazing yeah. piece of television. Yes. And it's just it, we'll it's cut available. This I mean, you can find it. <laughs> But it's just it's not TV. available enough. People what was the name it. of that writer? Uh, I think it was McCammon. Robert McCammon. Mm -hmm. He was a 
short story writer of mostly horror type stories. And um, I forget who did the script of that, but it was a wonderful script. And um, uh, it was a great experience. These guys really had a lot of time to do the Twilight Zone. And they had great taste. Harlan Ellison, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you guys I knew, very well, uh, yes. worked on that show. He was a story editor. And uh, I, that, I had a good time doing it. It's still around. It streams, mm-hmm. as they say. There's a, there's a DVD set yeah. as well. But yeah, no, that it is. We're immediately violating the agreement. I know we're not but, supposed to talk about the people's. Work, that was one of the scariest. No, that that was a, a a great script and a great piece. And I brought in um, all of the stunt guys I use to play parts in it. You know, mm-hmm. and they were the night crawlers. It, just to bring people into the picture, it's very uh, quickly and simply. It's about a Vietnam vet who deserted his unit and he's on the run and he stops into a diner. The whole thing is set in a diner and the, the unit was wiped out. They were killed. And now they come back as kind of living ghosts to bring him with them. And it's violent and it's scary. Yeah. Very violent for, for network television. At that time, yeah, I'd yeah. never seen anything like that on TV. But um, well, you know, but, uh, CBS in 1980, I think, mm-hmm. uh, ran The Exorcist in prime time, uncut. I cut a minute and fifteen seconds out of it. Bob Daly, who was head of CBS then, then Warner Brothers later, but he called me and he said. Um, if you can satisfy my standards and practices, people, I'll put it on The Exorcist in prime time, and we'll give you guys ten million dollars for the run. And I said, well, it, "Well, I don't know what they're going to want." And he said, "Don't worry, I'll talk to them." I wound up cutting a minute and fifteen seconds, and there were certain lines I, you couldn't say. Your right? mother breaks rocks yeah. in hell. Well, I, believe I, was the I uh, dubbed that myself. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I dubbed about six lines in the demon voice, which if you get me in the right mood, I'll do the demon voice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be grand. Um, well, we, uh, uh, again, I don't, I don't know how to talk to this man without saying a few nice things, and you've already, um, but we'll just shoo that. You, um, you make movies. Is that correct? I'm not saying anything nice. What the, the fuck is this podcast about? <laughs> if if I don't, I mean, um, what uh, am I doing here? Well, no, yeah, actually, I don't we're, often we're... walk around in the neighborhood. I mean, there's an In and Out Burger <laughs> up the street, but uh, I don't often walk down here by the crossroads of the world. We all make film, yes, in one correct. way or another. Let's when establish they, that. When they let us. We do. So if yes. you don't want to hear three. Dudes talking about film. You've come yeah, to the go wrong to Mark Maron. You have absolutely come to the wrong place. Um, but uh, yeah, but what we like to, to focus on here and and kind of shake it up and and get you out of the space of giving the interview. You're probably tired of giving. Yeah, us. we're just gonna have a conversation. We're gonna talk about the movies that that kind of inspired you coming up. The movies that gave you a. Let me tell you what inspires. Sure. A guy like Michael Curtiz. Yeah. A guy. Most of the studio directors of the 1940s and a little bit into the 50s, guys who made 
three, four, five films a year. Uh, and like Curtiz, did Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy in the same year. And another film as well with James Cagney. And these 217 guys, credits. 217 credits? Yeah. I know he did like 132 films uh, before Casablanca. Right. Yeah. And these guys were pros. Yeah. There were a lot like him. Raoul Walsh, Vincent Minnelli, who did the musicals at MGM and would do two or three of them a year. And he, Vincent Minnelli also did um, uh, Lust for Life. But Michael Curtiz did musicals. Uh, he did The Charge of the Light Brigade. He did uh, uh, Casablanca. And these guys were pros. Today, a guy takes 10 months to shoot a movie. Or uh, in the case of one of the most recent blockbusters, it took two and a half years to make this film. Where they're working on it all the time. A friend of mine who worked on it told me, now any imbecile can make a, a watchable movie in two and a half years. But the guys <laughs> yeah. who made these films in a matter of a couple of months at the most are the guys that inspire me. Yes, there are certain oddball uh, exceptions like Orson Welles, who made one masterpiece, which is a uh, will live forever. But he wasn't a studio director. He wasn't a guy who was what I would call a pro. And it's those pros that inspire me. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I couldn't make four or five watchable films, a couple of the masterpieces in a year. I mean, in one, in the same year. But don't, do you think that, um, uh, you know, like, I'm always careful not to sort of, you know, look at the grass on the other side and go, it's greener, but God, it, it has always seemed to me the more, the more time I spent in the business that there was, uh, as, as repressive as that system could be, that there was something about that studio system that, that was kind of glorious to work in. Um, I don't think it was repressive at all. Yeah. It gave people an opportunity to pursue their craft. Yeah. Writers sat around and pounded out these script they worked on sometimes two or three films at a time but that was the profession that but was don't you think that you know if you'd done three days on casablanca and then they just told you tomorrow you're not going to casablanca you're going to you know that's how the it wind instead i mean would that, that, that well be... that was more often it was not it was yeah. return of dr x or you know, right, it was, right. You, you you did what they asked you to do unless you wanted to get bounced you know right. and that went for the actors too uh what's what's amazing is the sheer volume and, and you know mm -hmm. now we finally reached a point where we can actually look back at 70, 80 years of film and see a large bulk of what was done. I mean, it's now available. It used to be yeah. impossible to access, yeah. but now it's, it's mostly all out there. And the more, I mean, I was, I just turned on TCM this, uh, yesterday. It was a Michael Curtiz movie I'd never heard of, you know, and I, and it, it's, there's just so, so much opportunity to be able to see what these people did and to read uh, Curtiz's, uh, the current uh, bio of him that's out. Uh, it's it's really thick. Yeah. I mean, he had an amazing career, and he was a foreign. He was where from Hungary he, or something. And he, yeah, yeah, his English wasn't very good, and he's 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 the sort of uh, the template for all the jokes in the Warner Brothers cartoons about movie directors who talk funny. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he did westerns. Yeah. He did everything. And he Comedies. didn't know anything about the American West. But before he would do a western, he would read up on it. Right. There are many like him. Raoul Walsh. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Minnelli, who did the MGM musicals. And, and so many other films. That, those are the people I really admire. These are the guys that threw the switch. Well, I feel like, I mean, why do you think, you know, as, as a kid, just learning to love movies, watching them on TV, we talked about this before when, you know, you didn't have a choice. There were four channels. If it had a mm-hmm. gun, you would watch it because mm-hmm. at least it wasn't some sappy romance. And I think Michael Curtiz was the first director I started to know. I started to notice that name kept coming up on these films because it was so frequently. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but he still, he never seems to get, you know, he, he's not, he's not, uh, he's not revered as an auteur. The well, way. who the hell cares about? No, 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 I, absolutely. But, but why bullshit. do you, yes, I'm with there you. But why no, is it? In my world, there are no auteurs. There are professionals. Yep. And then there are semi-professionals and then there are bums, you know? <laughs> and I'll tell you, if a guy can't make a watchable film yep. in two and a half years, forget it. And that's what has been going on today yeah. with CGI, which those guys didn't have. Everything you saw, they had to do. Uh, I know, like, when I went to do The Exorcist, um, there was no longer a, a convenient way to show breath in a room. In the old days, they used to, with a film like Lost Horizon, and they wanted to see, you know, a ship that's marooned in the snow. Or in order to show breath, they would shoot it at the Glendale Ice House, where big blocks of ice were manufactured. And they'd shoot scenes in that ice house. Many studios. By the time I came to film The Exorcist in 72, uh, there was no more Glendale Ice House. They weren't making big bricks of ice. So I had to refrigerate the set. Jesus. And But those guys, they had to refrigerate the set too. Right. So they shot in an ice house. They couldn't. Today, a guy can put breath in on, on a computer-generated right. image. That's the, uh, that's the picture where the hapless extra apparently put a piece of dry ice in his mouth. Oh, no. He would, he would be able to no, but guys breath. were talking with their breath. Uh, and... There are so many solutions that the guys uh, who created this business uh, solved. Well, you know, the mat shots and the glass shots and Those all of the incredible. amazing things that, uh, that are now uh, done on a computer, you know, just simply done on a computer or, or against a green screen. You know how many mat shots and just drawings there are in Citizen Kane? Oh, oh God. Yeah. The yeah. long shot of, of Xanadu. Yeah. Is a drawing. Yeah. There is no Xanadu, you know, but there's the illusion of Xanadu that they created in the camera. Well, which was a, which was a lot of stuff that Wells had to pick up on. I mean, he, you know, Arnold Gillespie was showing him how these things were done. And when he talked about had that famous quote about the electric train set, that the yeah. greatest electric train set anybody ever had, is because he was learning all of this incredible stuff because he was from the stage. And, and all the, the things that were technically possible that he hadn't even imagined. And he just was crazy about it. He just loved it. And the, the movie is filled with special effects. I mean, not so much that you think of it as a special effects picture, but there's so much visual imagery. A lot of it's lighting. Yeah. Too. And Greg Toland, who right. lit that picture, was a great mentor of Wells, which is why Wells did the unthinkable. He shared his screen credit. Oh, yeah. 
with the cinematographer. Right. No one would do the that. The guilds wouldn't let you do it now. <laughs> yeah, the guilds. Exactly. Uh, Greg Tolan to... was a genius. Yeah. You know, the, the, the big interior of Xanadu, which has the fireplace, mm -hmm. the staircase that he comes down, and she's doing crossword puzzles by the fireplace. There's no set at all. There's just the fireplace and the staircase. And, of course, her crossword puzzle. The rest is lighting that you assume you're in a large living room. And every time I see the film, which is often, I'm completely taken in by it. And I, I lose sight of how it was done. I don't think about right. how it was done because well, it's so convincing. That's the mark of a great movie. Well, that movie is in a class by itself. I mean, that changed everything, you know. And no one, in my view, has come anywhere near, except possibly, in my view, only gentlemen, uh, 2001, mm -hmm. you know, is on the same level as Citizen Kane. As a of accomplishment. Of, yeah. Just genius. Well, and Drive. Drive? <laughs> what I'm are poking these the bear. I'm poking the Nick, bear. Nick, if you're listening, <laughs> whatever else Drive may be, it's not a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> I love Drive, but I, I want to get back because I, I. All right, I, no, but it's it's, it's it's no Citizen Kane. I'll give you that. Um, well, nothing uh, exactly. Um, but I do want to get back to that question because it's interesting to me, and I I share your disdain for the auteur theory. But why is it? Do you think that someone like Curtis doesn't get that reverence from that? Because he was a studio director. He was. Yeah, yeah, it's the same the same problem Robert Wise had. Everybody said he doesn't have a style. Because right. every time he did a picture, it was different. It's a different film. And it was like, well, yeah. you know, how come he doesn't have, always have these wide shots? How come he doesn't always have these telephoto shots? How come he doesn't have something that I can grab onto so I can say that's the same guy? Right. But so, by the way, he was the editor of Citizen King. Exactly. And um, uh, later went on to direct some small features before he did the bigger ones. Good small features. I know that one of the things that Curtiz believed, and you can see it, in his movies, is the camera should not jump around a lot. He said, this is distract. Today, that's all they do. Today, a, a shot doesn't last seven seconds on the screen. Almost that's, everything. That's because of the TV remote. Has, has, you know, when we used to sit in the theater, we paid our money, we sat in the theater, we took what we got. I had no choice. But as soon as there was a TV remote, which meant you didn't have to get up and change the channel, you know, because that was the whole mm -hmm. theory of programming was the next program that comes on after a popular program will still be popular because people won't want to get up and change mm -hmm. the channel. But as soon as the remote was invented, then suddenly people had the ability to just change channels. And then when MTV came along and the whole idea of cutting faster, kids are, kids particularly, are just, they just, you show them a John Ford movie and they go, why is the shot still on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, like, why doesn't it change? Curtis believed that stuff like that was distracting. That uh, as things got dramatic, you would definitely have to go from one character to another to another. But he said mostly he felt the camera should move to the right place and the point of view should be the audience's point of view, not the director's point of view. And I know there's, there's a, on um, streaming, there's a, a, a um, behind the scenes of The Shining that I oh saw. yeah yes and it shows Kubrick setting up a shot with Jack Nicholson who's about to break down the door with a axe and Kubrick is on the floor on his back 
looking straight up at Nicholson doing this. And I'm as I'm watching it, and he says, I think this looks pretty good. He's using a viewfinder. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, why? Who in the fuck's point of view is that? <laughs> now, I don't think The Shining is a great movie, by the way. It it doesn't scare me. If that's its purpose, it doesn't scare me. To me, it's about a crazy guy who loses it, you know, and is trying to kill his wife and child. It's certainly about more than that, but basically it isn't one of the great horror films or, as it's considered to me. Well, it is now, yeah. It isn't, I wouldn't think it so. Well, there are a lot of people who uh, disdain it because it's not the book. Well, I don't, I never read the book. I couldn't care less about the book, but it doesn't scare me. Whereas a film, a little film called um, Diabolique, mm -hmm. a French film, has one of the most terrifying nine-minute scenes I've ever seen in black and white. And uh, a, a small film like Rosemary's Baby, I think, is in many ways terrifying because, not because of uh, horror, but suspense. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that leads to true horror is suspense. And without suspense, there is no horror. Yeah, Hitchcock was a big fan of Diabolik. Yeah. He wanted to make it. Yeah. And he went out and bought the next novel that those two guys wrote, Bolio and Narsajak. And that became who, Vertigo. And that was Vertigo, which I also don't like. It's considered one of Hitchcock's greatest film. Some people think it's the best film ever it's made. Overcome, uh, my brother. Sound pole, uh, <laughs> yeah, Overcome Citizen Kane is the best film. Ever. I don't. I don't buy it. I, I think I am, it's. I am with you. Tedious. In, in my heart is singing to hear you say this. Uh, I mean, it's, I love Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. Whenever too, I yes. speak at a film school, I will tell the students with the instructor there, leave the school immediately, quit <laughs> yes. film school, and just go watch Hitchcock's films. Not for suspense or horror, but just how to make a film. It's all there. It's a tutorial. How a film is made, you can pick up from any Hitchcock film. And, you know, they're all masterworks. And they're, they're very simply, the effects are simply achieved. Um, but I, I don't believe you can learn to make a film. You can learn how to use the equipment. Mm -hmm. But the ability to create a film is inherent in people, or it's not. I agree. That's great. I, I also I think the problem with Vertigo. Tell me if you should, is is it's the only Hitchcock film where the subtext is the text. It's it's all on the surface. It's all about what's going on with the the crazy psyche of the characters, and along the way, sort of loses the surface of his other films, which are these wonderful plots. It just, well, to me. The great Hitchcock, well, North by Northwest, of yeah, course. Sure. But the great experience is Psycho. Yeah. Psycho will scare you today. You know, there's some films that lose their luster. They used to, let's say, terrify when they came out. Psycho has not lost that luster. It's timeless and terrifying. You know, the, the idea that you can check into a motel, take a shower, and get stabbed to death. You know, it's and still pretty current. <laughs> and it's still it, fear, right? well, it, uh, John Gavin was a great friend of mine. And uh, I always 
used to introduce him to people. I would say if it wasn't for John Gavin, people would still be checking into the Bates Motel. <laughs> <laughs> well, what that's an interesting subject and horror having having made one of the again, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. Uh, a perfectly fine horror film, shall we say? I never thought I'm of it. trying to avoid. I don't think of it as a horror film. Uh, it's a very all. scary film. Well, I knew it would be disturbing yeah. when I set out to make it, but disturbing because it deals with the supernatural on a very practical basis, you know, and right. it slowly takes you to the supernatural. Are you Catholic? No, no. But I, when I made the film and now, I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. I think they are ways to live. I, I don't buy into the church or the priesthood. Um, and, and I think there's certainly, in my view, a, a lot wrong with the church today. But nevertheless, the teachings of Jesus are, are quite beautiful. But the guys who wrote the New Testament were not writing uh, history. They were creating a religion. And so you, you allow for that when you read the New Testament, some of the things that you must believe in order for Catholicism to exist, like the virgin birth and the resurrection. I don't need the virgin birth or the resurrection to believe in the teachings of Jesus. But you know, uh, that, that film has a market effect, or did. On Catholics, particularly lapsed Catholics. Well, it was a time, we now know, in which in recorded history of this country, most people joined the Catholic Church when the exorcists came out. Most people became priests. And I'll tell you a story. I was, at the time, I was doing um, interviews for the exorcists. And I went on um, the Merv Griffin show. And as I arrived at the theater, the assistant told me that James Cagney was waiting in the dressing room. And he was going on before me. And he wanted to meet with me and talk to me. I had never met James Cagney. I went into the dressing room, and there he was in the chair getting pancake makeup to go on TV. And he said, I got a bone to pick with you, son. <laughs> I said, well, what is that, sir? He said, I had for 35 years the greatest barber I've ever had. He was the greatest barber in the world. He saw your picture and he joined the priesthood. And I haven't found a guy as good since. And it's your damn fault. And that was the kind of thing that happened. People joined the church and the priesthood in numbers that they have not seen since. And I've seen these figures. Um, there was a lot of controversy, as I think you're pointing out, Joe, uh, about the film in the church. Uh, most of the people who were at the highest level of the church not only believed in it and promoted it totally, but like the head of the Jesuit order at the time was a man called Father Pedro Arupe, and he was in Milan. And he had his own print of the film, 
And he used to show it to other priests and bishops and friends. And uh, the um, guy who was the uh, cardinal in New York uh, spoke about it in glowing terms from the pulpit. Many other high-ranking prelates of the church supported it. On a lower level, a lot of people thought that it was um, an attack on the church, which it certainly was not and wasn't intended. No, I didn't. I didn't uh, remember getting that vibe from uh, from what was going on, but I do remember going to the first screening uh, in Philadelphia, um, and uh, people left uh, because of the intensity. Uh, and and what I fuck them if they can't well, take a joke. What I what I what I admired about the picture particularly was that um, the setup to the movie has so many disturbing images and so many disturbing moments, like the the Father Karras's mother and uh, the, the the shots of the nuns with their cassocks flying in the in the wind. This this great stuff that's sort of disorienting, not 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 horrifying, not terrifying, but just just a little off and and then of course you see this little girl and she goes to get the get all these medical procedures done that are really unpleasant and uh and the audience is 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 kind of on edge they're kind of like been set up for something so that when the quote horror movie stuff happens you know with the spinning heads and all that kind of stuff that you would ordinarily expect from a film like that and which was imitated beyond belief by many of the films afterwards um, the audience is putty. They are just ready to be scared by this movie. And it, it, it it's one of the, I mean, I don't say this in a bad sense, um, maybe it is, but uh, it's one of the most manipulative movies that I've ever seen in terms of being able to get an audience where exactly, because that's what we do. We're directors. We direct people's attention. And to get people to a place where they could experience that movie deeply, um, I think I think in that sense, that picture is an aspect. I appreciate that. As you well know, people that go to a film, they want to be scared or to laugh or to cry. That's about it. I don't know anybody that goes to a movie to have a philosophic experience. As Sam Foley used to say, in one word, emotion. Emotion. Yeah, emotion. And if you can provide uh, that other level, then it can be a masterpiece, like Citizen Kane, which is an incredible story, but it's about the biblical idea of what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul. So this idea overrides this incredibly well-told story. Not many films have an underlying, as you say, uh, subtext. No, and also at, at I, I've always found the ending of Citizen Kane very moving. Um, oh my when God! That, when that yeah. when that sled goes into the sorry spoiler, sled, <laughs> sled, you're not spoiling the, it. The sled goes into the oven and, it, and the music hits and it goes up and you see the smoke and everything and then it goes back down and it says no trespassing. I mean that is real. Yeah, that, it's that, stunning. That, that just chills you. Un- it's unexpected too. Yeah. You did not expect to find out what Rosebud meant. No, and you right. didn't expect to to feel for this guy. Yeah, right. Who is who is a bit of a bastard, uh, but 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 to see what what caused the, the rosebud thing is is so it's so simple 
in one way, but it's so profound in another. Because exactly. It's actually, his it that's that's the moment where his his life changed, and w- whether it's based on Marion Davis's clitoris or not, uh, <laughs> which apparently yeah. it is, uh, that's an inside joke for them. I think it is an inside joke. For but Wells, Wells used to always say that he didn't really mean to upset uh, Hearst, that he wanted, he felt that it was a combination of people, including Hearst. But it was mostly. It's Hearst. so specific it was, yeah. with the San Simeon thing that, you know, it's kind of hard to not see it. Well, and it's, have you, have you seen that video of Donald Trump talking about it a few years ago? Yes. And I, I was fascinated that Donald yeah. Trump would think, of course he would think, think this was a great movie. Yeah. I don't think he has any understanding of what a movie is. No, no, no. But, but and, th- th- that character, yeah. for him to identify with that character, and that's like ennobling himself to, to like that movie, that is very Donald Trump. Why don't you think Trump has any understanding of what a movie is? Because I don't think Donald Trump has any understanding of much of anything except Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I don't think, even think he understands that. Or that's pretty span. heavy. <laughs> I mean, sorry. you can disagree with the guy, but that's very heavy. Well, I don't think he has the attention span. I also don't think, uh, as you're saying, that talking, guy's I don't, running the. United States of America. Please I don't remind. I hope he's not. I hope. But he's you cannot yeah. be. And you can disagree with Trump, but the, you know, I, I think there's too much of this anti-feeling in this country. You know who was much more condemned in his time as president than Trump was Abraham Lincoln. There has never been a president as condemned as Lincoln to the point where. What was it? About a third of the states just resigned, just quit, walked away, and went to war. And he was presiding over the civil war that Donald Trump is probably trying to uh, start right now. We're still well, fighting. I don't, I don't buy that, I, and I think you have to wait for history because a, a guy who also went out at a very low level of popularity was Truman, and I think if it wasn't for Truman, we wouldn't be sitting here. That, in my opinion, the decision that he had to make to end the war, which was draconian and horrible, ended the war. And then they saved Japan. They saved Germany and Japan, the Marshall Plan. And if you look at a newspaper today, and on the front page you see a picture of Tokyo, a picture of Berlin, and a picture of Detroit, you would wonder which of these countries lost the war. And you'd probably say Detroit, you know, because we rebuilt Germany and Japan and they were going down to hell. Japan was ready to fight to the last babe in arms in World War II. And what Truman did, which, you know, viewed just in hindsight and without any thought behind it, was horrible, it saved Japan, and it saved this country. Well, I think if you're expecting that level of achievement from Donald Trump, you're going to be extremely disappointed. Yeah. I, I live in hope, Joe. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I live in hope. I don't know if that's always in the films that I make, but I'm also not a knee-jerk critic of anybody, you know? For example, to get back to films for a second, uh, Though I revere Citizen Kane, I think a lot of Wells' films are rubbish, especially the last one, which I don't believe should have been released. Oh, the new one. Uh, The Other Side of the Wind. I I mean, I think it should never have been released. 
and, and these are supposedly his friends. He had no idea what he was doing. I don't feel He says like, so. Uh, he says that in the yeah, interview. Yeah, in the documentary, I don't, but when they all start emphatically insisting that he did want to finish the film, I don't believe them. I don't think he wanted to make this Isn't this part of the bromide that the the, the problem with Wells is that he never wanted to finish anything? Well, I I don't know about the other films, but this one one feels like an excuse. There's no film. Yeah. This is not an Orson Welles film. Right. You know, like Kafka's The Trial that he directed is more Welles than Kafka. It's sort of anti-Kafka, and it's very much of a Welles film. Um, So is The Stranger. Yep. Is a, so is of Arcadian. course is a, a touch of evil. Evil, evil yeah. Mr. Arcadian. is a is a is definitely a Wells. Film. Have you yeah. seen the other side of the wind? Yeah, it's you. It's not a Wells film. Well, it's 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 a reconstruction of what Wells's friends thought that he might be intending. But, but it's not shot. No, but it's still full by Wells, like a well. Wells film. Well, he's shooting something. He's doing something completely different. I, mean, I think he's not, shooting parties on weekends. This is not. Yeah. The, this is not his usual style, and he claimed that he didn't want to do his usual style. He wanted to do something different, and so that whole thing with all the different people with the cameras and all the, the fast cutting and all that stuff—that's that's not the kind of thing that he used to do. More Wellsian is the film within a film, which has been claimed is supposed to be a uh, parody of Antonioni. Oh, but why would but you parody Antonioni? Right, exactly. And also Who it's not because shit? all of, all of the all of the designs of those images are all the Wellsian. Toward the end of his life, Wells couldn't hold Antonioni's jockstrap. Antonioni was a great creator, a, a unique filmmaker. And whether you like the films or not, he did something different. And and he was skillful. And and I remember Antonioni's films really made me think profoundly about aspects of human nature. Uh, they were not what I said earlier, emotionally, you know, visceral, but they did have something else that was compelling. And so I don't know why I've heard all these stories, like that you mentioned that Wells was parroting Antonioni. Why would you do that? Why would you want to parody Antonioni, uh, who was, I don't know, probably finished also by no, the at that time, time they he made was doing? Uh, well, I mean, he had just made Zabriskie Point, right. and I think oh, sorry, that, they shoot in the house next door, and, and I think yeah, they shoot the, in yeah. the house next door to Zabriskie Point. Yeah. So I'm thinking that that's probably the Antonioni that they're thinking of while they're making this picture in 1970. Well, Zabriskie Point doesn't work too well, right? No, it doesn't. Well, it's it, that's part of the phenomenon of. When, when foreign directors come to America and, and, and make their American movie, and then uh, it's their version of what well, Billy Wilder did like. pretty good. Well, exactly. And so did Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang, yeah. yeah but that, but in, the, in the 60s, it was a little different. I mean, you, you, there are, there, the, 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 um, the Jacques Duray actually made a pretty good picture called The Outside Man, which is very much, uses, oh, yeah. uses amazing ca- uh, Southern California locations. Yeah. But uh, Jacques Demy's uh, American movies are mm-hmm. among his best. And, uh, it, sometimes it just didn't work. Sometimes they would come over and make one picture and then give up and go back home, you know. But mostly those directors that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation were foreign directors. They were for, like Michael Curtiz, was from Hungary. Mm-hmm. And he's made some of the most American beloved films. But those, those guys didn't come here to make movies the way Antonioni did, for instance, or some of these others. They came as, as journeymen to 
work here. Well, they were they came because to, the studios said these guys are popular right. in Europe and they're making these art films. Let's bring them over here and have them work for us. That that oh you, the that Antonioni's yeah that yeah. doesn't usually work. Out that's not how Curtis came here. Or no, he came over the same way everybody else. Does. Right, like I want a job. I'll, I'll, I'll be I a don't like, or I'll yeah. make movies. I don't like Subrisky Point, but I love La Ventura and La Note and La Clisse and Blow Up. Blow Up is a masterpiece to me. You know, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. I promise you. What? Uh, that we talked last time. I. It's one of those movies that I go back to. Me too. And well, no, yeah, I, but it, he can't. He comes it, back. It you can't, you don't me. get it. It doesn't work for me. Really? But, but I'm will. Just strange. You know, it, it may. Reality and illusion. Yeah. I don't know that it's ever been handled better. Uh, this photographer, a guy who's dealing in images, living imagery. Um, that he sees and experiences. He's not even creating his photography. He's recording certain things. Like you see these miners that he has photographed at the beginning. And he's looking for one image to end this book of photographs. And he thinks it's the image of two lovers in the park. And it turns out to be an image of murder. I mean, that's an insanely that's wonderful yes. concept. You know what I think the problem may have been, too, is I came to it very early, and that concept is so compelling on a, uh, just on a sort of base level. You know, if you're 13 years old, that is not the premise for an exploration of reality and imagery. Yeah. That's a that's a, that's yeah. a great thriller, and you sit there and you watch that film at the 13? age of 13. You were 13? No, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's probably not, not the right, right age. That's an incredible disappointment. <laughs> that's not the right age for yeah. blog. But looking for naked women. Well, sure, naked <laughs> women, murder, action, shooting, killing, you know, and then you get blow up. Uh, well, That's, to me, you the mentioned the ending of Citizen Kane very eloquently. And of course, it's probably, you know, to me as well, the greatest ending of a film ever. Um, but I think right up there is the ending of Blow Up, when he throws back the invisible tennis ball. That, to me, is a profound moment. He has lost his grip on reality. By trying to find the the clue to an image, which I don't know that he ever really finds, you know, it looks like there's a gun pointing out of the bushes. I'm not sure it really is, or it's his illusion. Uh, the, the film, I, I still, the films that I love are the ones that I still watch today. I don't see a lot of the new films, except I saw this film, The Guilty which is a Norwegian film, see it. See this film. It's fucking great. And it's one guy who is working 9-11 in a Norwegian town. A 9 Letter uh, one. A, uh, you know, Police people, emergency. People call to complain of some problem. It's stunning. It's one actor in a room. And to me, it's I would rather watch this film again than Lawrence of Arabia, which has camels crossing the desert for minutes on end and this horrible, soppy music playing. You know, this crap is playing on the sound. I don't know. You know, it makes me think there's a hundred musicians sitting by the camera. Who are these guys? Why is this music? 
and it doesn't draw any emotion out of me. It's two really? guys crossing the devil on desert on camels. I never saw that movie. The movie has great scenes in it. And David Lean was a great filmmaker. The smaller films like Brief Encounter, you know, uh, oh, Jesus, are, are great. The earlier David Lean films. River Kwai? Is that... I like River Kwai. I think it has a lot of waste in it. It was, you know, I, I think the, the sort of love story in the jungle was you could take out of there and not miss a thing. But there's greatness in it especially in the performances. Yeah. yeah. Alec Guinness, stunning. Uh, I have a different view. The films I watch over and over are the films that continue to move me. One of the directors who carried on the tradition that we first started talking about, uh, the guys from the 40s like and 30s into the early 60s, like Curtiz, was Sidney Lumet. Mm -hmm. Sidney Lumet was a very economical filmmaker. He used to, he had a vision of a scene and he just marked the floor for the actors and they had to hit those marks. They didn't hit the mark, cut, stop. You're supposed to be on that mark. And he had a total vision of what the film was going to be. He wasn't out there like you see a lot of people doing today, shooting every angle with three cameras around the clock. You know, that's, that's, that's television. <laughs> well, no, it's feature. You see it in features today. You see the shot changing every few seconds. Uh, because there's often three cameras on every scene. You don't want them to get bored, do you? What? You don't want them to get bored. I don't know how you can get bored if, if the story is there and the characters. Are well, Lumet started out like Frank and I were in live, live TV. And well, and George Roy Hill, and George Roy Hill, Frank a whole, Schaffner, a whole bunch of guys like that. Yeah, uh, uh, what's his name? Arthur Penn, mm -hmm. uh, and they all and they did they they all learned. Uh, it was a combination of stage directing and motion picture directing, but it was live. Mm -hmm. And the, the, if you see some of the kinescopes of like oh. Requiem for Heavyweight, it's it's sometimes the camera doesn't get where it's supposed to get. Sometimes there are things that go wrong, but there's an excitement. To, to knowing that this is all happening live and that there's only one chance to get this right. And if something goes wrong, you just go with it and, you know, make the best of it. Uh, and that's, that, that's, people say this all the time, but the television really lost something when it went from, uh, from live to tape. Because once, once you could fix it, it's like watching a magician on film, you know, like, so what? You watch a magician in front of you, mm -hmm. he's really doing magic. But on, on film, anything can be done. Did you see those shows live? I did. I did as well. I got really scared as a kid, and I used to be afraid that the set would fall down. I saw one show where the set fell down, and I felt so bad for all the people who were watching the stuff that if, the, if it started and said, live from New York, I get all queasy, thinking, oh, no, it's gonna, mm -hmm. it was an ordeal to watch it. But I, I, there was just something, uh, and there was an electricity to it that you just didn't get with plays. And I, and I liked it. Plays the play of the I, week. I get that feeling with theater. tape show. I get that feeling with theater. It makes me feel. What was I? I went to. Uh, uh, it was a Mark McDonough play um, down at the Mark Taper a few years ago, and there was a key moment at the end that demanded that a cat 
walk out along this parapet and go over and eat some food and then walk back into its room. And clearly they did it every night and it's a real cat. And I have never been more anxious in my life <laughs> as you're, I mean, how the fuck do you guarantee that a fucking cat is going to, you know, yeah. it's that. I wouldn't invest in that. Yeah. Show. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wonderful play on Broadway called <clears throat> Play That Goes Wrong. Oh yeah. I've heard of this. A, yeah. A, a, yeah. A, a sort of a, of a reading of the will kind of haunted house mystery kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's very prosaic, but everything, every door that doesn't open, every prop that isn't there, every set that collapses, every actor who falls down and can't get up. Uh, it's, it's really a, a very, very, well, I want to see that, it's but really it's the same funny. thing every night. Well, unless they may change it every night. I don't know. Okay. Because I mean, that's, I've always wanted to do a play in which you don't know if the play is going to make well, that it was the Hell's through Apocalypse. or the... that was Olsen and Johnson's original Hell's Apocalypse. Oh, really? It would do every it. night. Yeah. Well, I used to watch Playhouse 90. You know, it was live. Mm -hmm. And the shows by John Frankenheimer were incredible. Frankenheimer was my idol when I came mm -hmm. out here because I worked in live TV in Chicago. I did close to 2,000 live shows before I ever did anything on film. And they were everything from cooking shows to um, a live courtroom drama to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and baseball games. Mm. And, uh, but I never did dramatic shows anywhere near that level. And it was stunning. And when I met John and became friendly with him, he was my idol. I thought he was just a genius. The, the way he used live TV, like cinema, mm -hmm. you know, everything was possible. It wasn't, uh, you know, and they had several sound stages going at once at Television City, which is on Fairfax uh, and Sixth, I think. Uh, Beverly. What? Beverly. Beverly. Uh, CBS Television City. Are they still using that mm -hmm. here? Yeah. I don't know for what. Probably films uh, or no, mostly sitcoms, uh, talk, shows. talk shows, talk shows. Well, in in the in the sixties, and it was Playhouse ninety, which was stunning and memorable. Well, I guess you can see them on Kinescope. You now. can, and both the uh, Lumet and Frankenheimer had these great runs. Yeah, uh, from the late fifties to the mid sixties of movies that were just like they, they just could do no wrong. I mean, they're yeah. just consistently great. Great scripts, yes, as well. Twelve Angry Men, Reginald Rose, written for live television. Originally, it was a one-hour live TV show out of New York, and then uh, it became a longer. He made it longer for television, and then Lumet did a feature mm -hmm. of it. But what a script that is. Yeah. What a stunning piece of writing. And there were many. Rod Serling wrote for live yeah. TV. Uh, so, so many of the greats of that. Patty Shayevsky. The great writers of that time wrote for live TV. Even uh, Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. um, and that's gone. You know. There's no, occasionally somebody like George Clooney will do a live television. Well, he did, he redid Failsafe. Yeah, I didn't see it. Well, it's one of his favorite movies, one of my favorite movies. And, uh, and he likes it so much that he said he was going to do it in black and white live. 
uh, with and, and it's fine, except it's sort of just well, like sort of like the same movie with different actors because right. it's, it's, he, mm-hmm. he pretty much copied the way that the way that it's been presented in the movie. And it was and, and there's a stunt quality to it, because, but but there is also something. It, it was literally live, and and there hadn't been live shows like that for you know decades. They're doing musicals too, aren't they? Yes, yeah. those live? are very popular. Yeah, are they? Or I haven't are those seen lives? any. Yeah. Okay, like Jesus Christ Superstar. And... I think it was Sound of Music. Or Sound of Music. I don't. I'm yeah. not sure. Well, the thing I think Lumet's book was the first time I ever read a director. His book on directing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading that at an early age and, and it just dazzled me because I always thought of, you know, you didn't notice directors unless they were telling you to look at them. So, you know, look at my amazing shot. That's and, the reason Curtiz yeah. is not considered the master. The Correct. Leaders. Sure. Um, but Lumet talked about something. I'd never noticed it. And now I, I do when I watch it, but, but doing 12 angry men, how the, uh, uh, the angle of, of the shots slowly starts high and over the course of 90 minutes it slowly drifts down and it was i think the first time it ever occurred to me that what directors really do is manipulate you as opposed to announce themselves because you don't you can't possibly notice that the first time you see that movie you don't need to know right that. exactly but if it has its way to with you. right that's what i'm saying but it Unless has its way pro. with you and i can't imagine i mean i can't imagine walking into that movie the first time and noticing that's happening that wouldn't but like, it, even occur to me. Yeah. Because what's the performances and what's written for yeah. the actors is everything. And, and the right. casting. Yeah. I mean, everybody is. But that direction has its effect on you without, you know, I think it works best when you don't notice it. Is, did you know that I did a version of that for television about, uh, I think, 15 or 20 years? That's right. Of, yeah. It's yes. coming out again. Oh. And uh, that had. Jack Lemon, George C. Scott, Ozzie Davis, Hume Cronin, uh, Bill Peterson, James Gandolfini, uh, Michael T. Williamson, uh, Dorian Harewood, Tony Danza, and I, I've just remastered it oh, again. Wow. So it's, it's being released. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Now, was that done on It was tape? done for TV. It was on... Uh, it was commissioned by MGM and Showtime. Was it done on tape or film? On, uh, I shot on film. Oh. But, you know, now it's a CGI. Right, but it's just there's so many shows from that era that were done on tape and uh, are now not, you, they can't boom, they can't turn them into Blu-rays because no, they were, it's all videotape. Yeah. And then videotape is, you know, it's not that great a medium. I did the first videotape show in Chicago. And uh, in those days, you know, it was videotape was literally recorded on tape, the sound and picture. The tape was about an inch and a half thick. And there was one second delay between the picture and the sound. The sound head and the picture head weren't recording in the simultaneous place. So when you splice, when you made a cut, a splice, you had to look through a magnifying glass and you had to find the bias between these little, almost invisible lines. There was um, a space. And if you didn't make the cut in that space, it would, there would be a glitch, what we called a glitch. So you could see the cut. You would see a, like an explosion. (laughs) Every time there was a cut, unless you made it on the bias. 
And so it would take, I remember that it used to take us an hour to make two splices oh. in a videotape wow. to get rid of the glitches. Uh, and the, the, the shows I did were certainly a lot simpler than what they later did with videotape. But had there been live TV, had it remained, as you said, I would have stayed in television. I had no ambition to become a filmmaker. I loved live television. I got into it basically right out of high school. And um, I started in the mailroom, the TV station, and worked my way up, which is the way you did it then. It's the way the directors you mentioned got into television. They were either in the mailroom or they were ushers at the live audience shows and um i would have stayed in live tv if it was still around it was such an exciting medium as you point out to do this stuff live sometimes a set fell over whatever but it was it was a high wire act and you had to get through on time yeah. and you had to start on time and it didn't take 10 months to make a movie right. <laughs> <laughs> Which any fool can do. Um, I kind of you brought you brought up Frankenheimer. I'd, I'd love to use that as an excuse to just to ask you about um, uh, just your your feeling. What was your response to uh, not that you created this playground, but you directed again without blowing smoke up your ass. You you directed at least two very acceptable car chases in your career. Uh, what, what did you think of, uh, the car chases in Ronin? Were you, I sent, well, I sent John an eight page handwritten, uh, letter begging him not to do French connection to, Oh, I begged him not to do it. I said, John, you, you are such a master. You're so great. And they're going to compare your film to mine and it's going to be found wanting. I don't care what it is um, because that, you know, the French connection had been so overpraised and lauded and anything that was done after was just not going to, I think the only sequel that really worked was Godfather two. Mm -hmm. It was the only sequel that was every bit as good, if not better than the original, but generally, you know, that doesn't work. It's just done right. to make money because of a successful title. The chase in Ronan is not the most impressive. I, I, the car chases that knock me out yeah, are the chases yeah. that knock me out are Buster Keaton. Oh, sure. <laughs> yes. And fortunately, I never saw a Keaton movie before I did either The French Connection or To Live and Die in L.A. Wow. Uh, if I had, I don't think I ever would have attempted a chase. It's why, see, I love painting, but I've seen for over 50 years now, I've been going to see the Rembrandts and the Vermeers, and I wouldn't take a brush to canvas if my life <laughs> depended on it after seeing a Rembrandt portrait right. sure. or, a, or a Vermeer uh, setting. Um, they're just phenomenal. And they are, um, uh, to me, they're inspiring, but they they don't give you the sense that you could do that. Mm -hmm. There are very few films that I've seen that I thought I could never do that. 
Citizen Kane is one of them. Uh, 2001 is another that I saw and thought, I could never do that. This is way beyond me. But not such a mass of things like the great um, masterpiece works of art that I've seen. Uh, the Peter Bruegel the Elder and Hieronymus Bosch. I mean, how in the hell do you do a Hieronymus Bosch? And why would you even... So it's no surprise to me that art has now become just Jeff Koons, you know, a plastic bunny or a bunch of squiggles on a canvas or an all-white canvas or an all-red canvas, and that's called art. Well, of course, what is a guy going to do after the Impressionists, after Van Gogh, you know, after uh, the, the, the Italian Renaissance? What are you going to do? You're going to squiggle paint on a can, like Jack the Dripper, you know, <laughs> Jackson Pollock. Uh, and that's modern art. There, there was a great uh, spy magazine piece back in the 90s called, uh, it was called My Kid Could Do That. And they got a bunch of children and they showed them things like They're great. Uh, the Children's basketball art. in a fish tank and they had them yeah. do that. And then they had an art gallery opening and presented as though these were, and they sold these things for a fortune. Um, I've seen but, the basketballs in a tank of formaldehyde. Yeah. And all of that stuff. It's awe-inspiring, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's <laughs> awful. It's just, and people are paying tens of millions of dollars for this bullshit. The wrong people have too much. Yeah, well, that's always been a problem. So so, um, so what you're saying is you would not have attempted car chases had you seen them. Not had I seen a Keaton film first. But that's interesting, though. because The General? You, yeah, sure. Oh, my God. I don't know how they did that stuff. See, I never had uh, any opticals either, or um, certainly no uh, sequences created on a computer. But the stuff that Keaton did in the silent films, it's beyond my comprehension. They were, they were death-defying. People yeah. could die. Keaton yeah. could have died yeah. doing a lot of these stunts, and they were brilliant. So I admire th those chase scenes. I don't admire the chase in Bullet. I think Bullet is the best cop film I've ever seen. It it embodies the no the notion of a San Francisco detective better than anything I've ever seen. But I don't think the car chase is that great. They just cleared the streets and ran the cars over the hills, over empty streets. And that inspired me when I made the French Connection to not to have not empty streets. Yes. <laughs> so I did things I would never do again. I shot without permits. I put the cars in actual, the car in actual traffic, you know, with no controls. And I would never do that again. But you were in New York. You could not clear the streets and have a believable chase. Uh, but the other, there other things I so admire about Bullet, especially Steve McQueen, who to me was a great film actor. Great. Steve McQueen did not need words. Yeah. You could tell what he was thinking. You'd watch Steve McQueen on the screen reacting to what somebody said or did, and with a look, you knew exactly how he felt. He didn't have to say anything. It's a very quiet film. 
it always surprises me when I go back to Bullet how how still and quiet uh, oh, yeah. it is. And, and Spencer Tracy was an actor like that mm. who still you could tell what he was saying, especially that great film Bad Day at Black Rock. Yeah. That's that's a great it film. It is a great film. But there are other chases that I have liked. The, actually, the the Born Identity mm. I think has a great, a really great chase scene. Um, well, you can track it. I find that a lot of uh, uh, the last few decades, a lot of car chases are impossible to follow because the camera's moving so fast and there's no sense of geography. No, and it's just, they've lost. And that. one of the things I loved about Born Identity, in fact, Doug Lyman did an amazing car chase, I thought, in Go, uh, a film he did a few years earlier in Las Vegas that is just a car chase. And same thing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And almost all of it to me seems to be because you are always aware of where you are, what your geography is, what the risks are. What the, mm -hmm. I think um, that's important in a chase. Yeah. yeah. Do you, uh, who was it? Was it Paul Greengrass who did the last one? Yeah. What was that called? Uh, well, he did the next two or three, I think. But the he last does. one was the one I thought had the great chase scene. Oh, really? I don't. Huh, oh my. Oh. That's fantastic. It's using some CGI, yeah. but today you should. If I was making a film today, I would use CGI because it's there. Yeah. And you're not putting people's lives in danger. Well, that's, to, that's the to great use thing it. about CGI is that, you know, with animals and, and stunts mm -hmm. and things like that, I mean, you, you can do things much more safely than you used to. I watched my friend uh, Caleb Deschanel uh, create. He's been on our show. He's on a couple weeks ago. Has he been on? Yeah. Well, he did The Lion King, the newest version of it uh. that's coming out, where it's all done on computer. They hired Caleb to be right. the director of photography without a camera. Right. You know, it's a computer made film. They went to Africa and shot animals and backgrounds and stuff. Then they brought that all back and composed scenes made from it on a computer. Mm. It's stunning. It's mm. wonderful. It's the next thing. Mm. It's beautiful to watch. Okay, Did you we, talk to him about that? No, we I, didn't. We didn't. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Well, the, that's coming out soon. Yeah, I just saw the trailer. The uh, they, well, they had 124, 224 million views to the trailer. Oh, right. wow. And you think somehow, that'll be a hit? Uh, <laughs> and yet somehow they're, they're, it, it's, it's an animated film still. It's well, an animated film. It is an animated film. Totally it's, believable. Right. You're not looking at a cartoon. Yeah. You're looking at, I mean, the way they did these, all the animals, but the lions. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of consternation in the animation world about yeah. what constitutes an animated right. film and what doesn't. I mean, if it looks really like a real film versus a cartoon that obviously is a mm -hmm. cartoon, uh, does, is that the same category? And that's it's a good question. Award issue. Yeah. And what is cinematography today? Well, yeah. If I uh, was starting out today, I would go into the computer world. I would not seek to be a live action director. I would seek to make films on a computer because of the, of limitless possibility and no danger. A lot of the films I made were dangerous. I have to say that. Uh, dangerous not only to myself, but to other people. But there's still qualities that I haven't seen anyone capture in cg that you just can't i mean there's there's just no way to... oh no the chases in born are 
Oh no, but they're, those are. But I'm, I'm just thinking more of. But they're yeah. also CGI assisted as opposed to yeah. entirely. CGI, yeah, like but I mean, I think racing. of I think of um, uh, you know, the truck going over the bridge scene in a, in Sorcerer in a film I'm I'm reasonably fond of. <laughs> well, that's all <laughs> that, done that, live, right? Exactly. But we I can't see do doing that. a CG version that has the weight and the smell and the, the, the just the CG is the very difficult. Weight very, is very difficult. Yeah, the, the idea of an yeah. animal or a truck or anything having landing and feeling like it's really got some heft to it is very difficult. It always seems so gossamer. You'll see it in the Lion King. It's a big breakthrough. Right? Yeah, I'm sure they'll saw it. Yeah, and I went up and watched them shoot. Uh, for a day, and there were 20 people on the stage rendering these images. And Caleb, as the director of photography, was indicating the lighting, you know, where the shadows right. should be and what the source of the light should be from, from frame to frame to frame. And this picture was made frame by frame. And there were, while they were rendering the final ver they weren't even the final versions everything they there were about 30 people sitting at computers in the studio rendering aspects of each shot that Caleb and his crew were taking and putting into the finished film except for all of the things like footprints and shadows and breath and stuff they sent the whole thing over to England to another company that puts in all that. <laughs> that when the lions like, or when any animal leaves its footprint, they weren't doing that. That was another company that was doing just that. Footprint. The Foley company. Yeah. <laughs> Visual Foley. Foley is, of course, a sound effects of movement that's created. Uh, footsteps editor. Footsteps. to be a credit on and other other sound body movements and stuff. The sound of a leather jacket is often made by what is called a foley artist, named after the guy who I guess created that process. I I guess. See, isn't this an educational? That's broadcast? right. We're learning new things all the time. Um, yeah, I, I I tend to. I don't know. I that, it it still makes me anxious to see an entire film. I don't know. I, I love the I think because you're a professional. Well, okay. if your audience, you don't care. <laughs> yeah, you just yeah. want to be moved. Yeah. You I believe that you have to, you know, really work hard to uh put an audience off. Yeah. They've come there, they've paid a lot of money and they want it to be good. They want to enjoy it. They want to love it. Yeah. Well, that's true and they don't care. I remember years ago getting a a, a VHS that was going around of um I think it must have sent it out for academy consideration when Jim Cameron did the abyss. And it was for effect. They'd show you effect shots. They were you know, hmm. looking for effects nominations. Wow. But they would show you, you know, because he shot so much of that underwater in these practical sets. And he would show you and would say underneath practical set. And then they'd show you one of the few shots from the film that were miniatures done in the smoke room. And I realized watching this, because you'd heard all these nightmarish stories of how much time they had spent making this movie underwater. And then you'd see one of the miniatures done in the smoke room. And you couldn't tell the difference. And you realized no one's going to give a shit. I thought no. someday he'll he'll shoot a movie on the actual moon and no one will care because well they don't believe just, the moon landing happened they that's believe right. that Kubrick shot it yes on a yes. soundstage well that was the joke they used uh, first man just used the Kubrick sets that were lying around well somebody said that to who was uh, what's the guy who was number two on the moon 
Uh, oh, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. Somebody once said that to Buzz Aldrin, and he smacked him. He punched him. <laughs> he, yeah. hit, he hit the guy right in the jaw. So I, I had the pleasure of meeting him about two days later. It was at a screening of that, um, uh, is it the IMAX movie? Um, and he was still, he was talking to a bunch of people and he felt really bad about that. And it was just a crowd of bad us. Bad that he had hit the that guy? He hit the guy. A crowd of the us, guy said that. No, that he had hit the guy. There was a crowd of us standing around going, no, no, it was, it was good to hit that man. <laughs> I think it was a joke though that the guy. No, the guy was serious. The guy was serious. Oh, that's a serious thing. People, that's, about, yeah. that's what The Shining is supposed to be about. You know, that's, there's a whole oh, subset yeah, of the people who, who have yeah. read what The Shining is really about the Indian burial ground. Oh, that's Kubrick's but it's, but confession. It, but that it's his, his confession. That's why the kid has a, a sweater that has Apollo on it. You believe that? Of course not. Nobody <laughs> no. believes that. But there's a whole documentary I know. just yeah. about that. Room 227. <laughs> and There's other stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's what, what was the, what was the joke? It's like Kubrick. Fake the moon landing. He's such yeah. a perfectionist. You know what's he interesting the moon. is that people see that kind of thing in Kubrick's films. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. More well, sure than any other filmmaker. Really? People don't, people must see messages in The Exorcist that were not. Well, no, I mean, but they see <laughs> stuff that's. Yeah. No, there's really a, there's a cottage there. industry of, of reinterpreting yeah. Kubrick's work. The meaning of the Eyes Wide, wide yes. Shut. What he yes. really meant. Right. I'm not sure he even knew what he meant about Eyes Wide Shut, but. Uh, I, 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 I feel like about that. that movie the way you feel about Other Side of the Wind. Other Side of the which Wind. Which I think is uh, on, I many, think on many levels a fascinating. Kubrick intended Other that Side of the Wind finished. disturbs me tremendously that this would be Wells's legacy film. It really disturbs me. It's not his legacy. I don't film. think it's it will. It's just be. a film that they put together from a, a, a one of the many unfinished There's movies. There's a lot of has. people that won't see anything else. No, There's a lot of people, people that won't go to Citizen Kane from other side of the wind. I don't, if, if, I don't think that many people who see other side of the wind are people who haven't seen Citizen Kane. But oh, somewhere no, I know people who haven't. Uh, young people who have are, seen the What new is one? this? What? Or who have seen other side of the wind, yeah. but, not, uh, but not Citizen Kane. Well, somewhere there's someone for whom it is their favorite movie. Because, of course, every movie, every movie ever made. Every is movie, there's somebody favorite. it's their favorite movie. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. That's what's interesting about it. All the infinite variety. Yes. Taste. Well, you find in cinema. Um, and why it, though it's the youngest of all the art forms, it's one of the best because of its popularity. And the fact that it combines all the others. Yeah. Or could. Well, when it doesn't always. Yes. It doesn't always, but it could. And that's what, to me, Citizen Kane does. Combine every other art form, like writing, cinematography, editing, um, uh, costume, uh, you name it. And there's a tremendous radio influence. In Citizen Kane, of course. That was his background. Sound. Yes. Yes. Citizen Kane is a sound film as well. Uh, the, the soundtrack is as interesting as what you're seeing mm -hmm. on the screen. And that was one of the influences that it had on me. I always regard the sound as separate, something to be created separately. The entirety of the Exorcist soundtrack I did separately, including all the voices, not the demon voice only. I looped the entire it picture for really? performance, for performance. By looping, I mean I re-recorded everything they so you said. You brought in it. What, what did you do about Jack McGowan? Uh, he didn't have that much to do, but I looped a lot of his work 
right on the spot. Hmm. I mean, after we, and I decide what scenes of his I was going to use, I took him into a looping room. And, uh, so you did most of them while you were still making the movie. Some of it. Not, not, I, we didn't do any of the demon voice while I was. Well, but that's, oh, that's always a sort of post thing. Uh, but a few of the scenes I knew I had to loop or keep reshooting them because either we shot most of the film on locations with the exception of the little girl's room and the interior of the house. But everything else, like the desert and everything, the Iraqi desert, uh, was all there in, in Nineveh. And uh, doctor's offices were real doctor's offices. The place where she got the arteriogram was a hospital room at NYU Medical Center. And the machines were going mm -hmm. constantly. And you couldn't get what I was looking for in that film, which was intimate sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like two people are talking to each other, not at each other, right? but they're talking as though um, over a table in a quiet place. That's the kind of sound I was going for. You can't always get that. And we shot, even the studio stuff was done in an old studio on the west side of Manhattan that had pigeons flying around. <laughs> and very often you'd have pigeon warble throughout a Mm. An intimate dialogue scene. Mm. So yes, I That's looped uh, yeah. the I entire. I, I did not know that. Uh, the entire film. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I, I want to ask one thing uh, before we go because we've got you here, and I'm just no. I'm not going to identify myself and say this is the Josh Olson, <laughs> no, Joe no, Dante no, podcast. No, 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 we don't. No, no, this no, is no. William no. Friedkin. No, I'm not going to no, do no, that. No, 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 no. We don't, I know this is a genuine, I, I want to know this, this may be more annoying. I don't know. Um, uh, I've also known, what, what did you think of um, Blatty's uh, Exorcist film? I never saw it. You never saw it? I've never seen any of the sequels. Hmm. I've seen some of the, I love Bill Blatty. Yeah. We were friends to his death. And we would speak at least once a week by phone. He lived in Bethesda, Maryland for about the last 20 years of his life. I lived in California, where I still live. And we would speak all the time. I'm still in touch with his wife. But I never saw... Hmm. I've seen moments right. of what is called Exorcist Three, yeah. But it's actually, he adapted it from his novel Book called Legion. Legion. Yeah. Uh, and I'm told it's very good. But I was exorcist out, you know, <laughs> when I finished time, the film, <laughs> I had, I'll tell you, I did see a great deal of exorcist too, oh. under the following circumstance. That'll cure you I was at the Technicolor <laughs> lab, color timing something. And one of the timers said, we just finished exorcist too. Would you like to have a look at it? And I don't know why. But I went into the room and I sat through maybe 40 minutes of it. It's the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a fucking disgrace. Yeah, well, it's, uh, that's, it, uh, it is so <laughs> damn dumb yes. yep. and idiotic. And, and what it does is it takes Blatty's great creation and tries to reverse it and trash it. Mm -hmm. And on that level alone, it's idiotic and stupid. But on the level of filmmaking, it is talentless. 
And got it. What a cast it had. Richard Burton and Max von Sydow and Louise Fletcher. And plus Linda Blair. James Earl Jones. What? James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. That's the worst 40 minutes of film I I have ever seen. (laughs) Really, and that's saying a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, did you ever see Blatty's first film then, Ninth Configuration, or was it just... No, I no. never saw oh, Okay, he, he I don't that. see a lot of films, guys. Mm. I see the ones that I've loved over and over sure. and over again. Like I read the, the books that... I read The Great Gatsby. Um, you know, after a lapse of maybe six months, I'll have to read that again. Um, but the films I see most often are, uh, of course, Citizen Kane. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, mm. All About Eve, um, The Verdict, 2001, Paths of Glory by oh, Kubrick, yeah. which I think, for me, it's the best war film I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, there's a film I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm not going to mention your work, Joe, because I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. There's plenty of smoke flowing in the room already. I've been trying very hard not to say nice things about the This is your podcast, so I'm not going to say, but I watch The Parallax View Mm. all the time. That's great. Alan Pakula directed with Warren Beatty. It's about the kind of stuff that we take for granted today. Yeah. You know, all of the mysterious events and happenings and conspiracy theories that are now a dime a dozen, but more and more believable. For example, I believe that somebody murdered Vincent Foster. I believe it. I read a book uh, by a very good journalist named Christopher Ruddy called The Strange Death of Vincent Foster, and it convinced me that he was murdered. For one thing, he was supposed to have shot himself in the head. But his body was found peacefully laid out on the grass in Fort Marcy Park. It was laid out as though in a coffin. And if you shoot yourself in the head, your arms are going to go akimbo. He was found with his arms neatly at his side, the gun in his right hand. The bullet through his head has never to this day been found. Or if it was, it was never turned in. No one has found the bullet. The park rangers who were first there, the D.C. police, he was found in two different places, strangely. And, but it was a long distance up from where you parked your car, and yet there were no grass stains on his shoes. But there were carpet stains on his shoes. And that and a whole bunch of other events surrounding it have convinced me by a journalist that he was murdered. By who I have, or why, I have no idea. I wonder if David Hemmings took any pictures. Yeah. That would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, but there was, the first park ranger on the scene said that he looked into his briefcase and saw there was a note in the briefcase that the ranger says he didn't read. By the time the D.C. police got involved, there was no note in the briefcase. Oh. And of course, you know, in the JFK assassination that they never found his brain when they did the autopsy. The guys who did the autopsy didn't have his brain. Someone's got it. Well, I don't know 
what happened to what it. What you do with it? Um, no, it's interesting. I just watched uh, uh, All the President's Men the other night for the first time in a long time and, and was having a conversation with someone who had not seen it before and is younger. And, and uh, uh, the context of that, the context of the times we are in now, you're watching that movie. And it was interesting watching it through her eyes because. Who, who's that? Uh, my friend who had not oh, seen I see. it. Who's, okay. who's, who's going, why, why don't. It takes them forever to make the connections. You're going, yeah, because in 1972, you wouldn't immediately leap to the conclusion that the <laughs> president of the United States was behind this burglary. Right. Whereas today it would be, you know, of course he <laughs> be was the first place. You, yeah. Of course, why wouldn't he, uh, um, you know, and, and so. here's an interesting little factoid. I know Bob Woodward and, uh, he told me that, um, one of the plays, one of the main places where he was meeting deep throat yeah. was in the garage of the Roslyn Hotel, the Park Hyatt Hotel in Roslyn, Virginia, where we stayed while we were making we The Exorcist. And while my cast and crew was in the Park Hyatt, Woodward was in the basement with Deep Throat. Wow. The, the, not the basement, the car park. The, the car park. The Exorcist connection. Wow. Yeah, wow. It was, Sooner or later, everything comes back to shot during Satan. that period <clears throat> when the, the articles were appearing in the Washington Post. Wow. That's the, right. Yes. Satan never yes. I turned down this directing All the President's Men. Really? I didn't like the script. I thought it would, be, would have been far more interesting to to try to do a film about what was happening and being said in the White House sure. than what the reporters were doing. Um, it, that was just my own opinion. I'm obviously biased and wrong, but I, I felt there was not going to be a lot of suspense. They tried to make, they tried to suggest that they were being threatened, I right. think, at one point. But William Goldman wrote that script. Yeah, it's a And I remember script, yeah. sending a, a long handwritten letter to Robert Redford, who offered me that script, and I just didn't care for it. Mm. Oh, you can't show a picture if you don't care for the script. No. It's a bad idea. Well, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> film, but watching it again, I realize if you don't come into that with, and I don't mean just being aware of who Nixon was, but, you know, about two-thirds of the way through the film, they just start talking about Muskie as though anybody who's, 35 years old watching this film would know what the hell they're talking about. Well, it's and, a movie of it, it's a movie of its time. And it if you absolutely have, demands if you, you're immersed. If you compare it with the front runner, right. the, the current uh, movie by Jason oh, Reitman yeah. about uh, Gary Hart, uh, it, it has some of the same problems in the sense that there's a lot of those you problems. have to know. I, I like the movie, but but you have to know certain things already mm. in, in order to get the value out of the movie. And, and a lot of people in the audience that I saw it with were too young to get right. what was really going on with some of the references. And I, I think that's, that's always a problem when you try to delve yeah, into that era, that deep. you know, uh, you have to try to bring people along without boring the people who already know this. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. No, it's fact. Cause I mean, I, I had a uh, Watergate coloring book when I was a child. And I'm, <laughs> You're I'm, kidding. Uh, no, no, that was, that was my Jesus. coming of political conscious. So all these, you know, I have a, I remember coloring BB Rebozo's face. But uh, watching this How film and realizing exactly wow. well, watching this movie and realizing that it's what a waste of youth. <laughs> <laughs> but I know all those characters. Um, anyway, well, <laughs> on, I that, had an, on, that on that note, <laughs> I had an unfortunate oh. uh, experience with Bob Woodward. He came to me. He was writing a book about John Belushi. Oh, right. Yeah. 
called Wired. Wired, yeah. It came out and was called Wired. And it turned out, which I didn't know at the time, but uh, Woodward informed me that the last phone call John Belushi made before he died was to me. Oh, wow. And John Belushi used to call me from the road. Just, I guess he was freaked out or whatever, or just loved to riff. And we were both from Chicago and both worked with Second City at different times. But he would call me. And yet I ne- I've never met John Belushi. I was never in the same room with John Belushi. But I uh, certainly knew of him and he knew of me. And we would have phone calls. And Woodward went to Judy Belushi, his widow, and convinced her that he was going to do a positive book about Belushi. And she gave him all of Belushi's diaries. And he kept scrupulous diaries, including (coughs) phone calls that he had made. And I was the last phone call. So Woodward called me from Washington, and I was at Universal at the time. And um, Woodward assumed, I guess, that I was one of Belushi's um, junk friends. And he was asking me things about doing drugs with Belushi. And he asked if he could come out and interview me. And I said, why would you want to interview me? I have only talked to him on the phone. I remember this phone call because Nick Nolte was in my office. And I remember that Belushi was going on and on. And I said, John, I'm sitting here with Nick Nolte. He said, Nick Nolte. He said, tell Nick Nolte he's a candy ass. Nick Nolte's a fucking candy ass. And I said, I'll put you on the speaker, John, and you can tell him. And so then he got into some jive with Nick. And I remember that phone conversation because of that. Now Woodward says, I want to interview you. He comes out to interview me. Every question was about drugs. I can't believe you never did drugs. I can't believe you didn't see you. I said, Bob, I have never smoked grass. I've never, I gave up cigarettes when I was 12. I started when I was 10. I've never tried any drug never anything i don't know what grass tastes like let alone the heavier stuff and i i was like a narc when all this stuff was really going on out in hollywood i'd come into a party where there was you know bowls of coke on the table and i'd leave i just turn around and leave if i had a date we'd leave so i said i didn't do any of that okay so his book comes out And there's about a page about me and what I've said. He didn't accuse me of anything in the book. But the book is a a travesty on Belushi. And now, some years later, I meet the woman who became my wife, Sherry Lansing. We've been married now, oh, it's uh, 27 years. But before we got married, Sherry's sister in Washington, and her husband, they're very close to Bob Woodward and his wife. And when Sherry's sister told 
Woodward that her sister Sherry was getting married to me, Woodward said, oh, you better watch it. He was a drug addict with, <laughs> oh, no. with John Belushi and that crowd. And Sherry's sister <laughs> called her and, sa- and told her what Woodward had said. And of course, I told Sherry, and she knew that I was so square that it wasn't funny <laughs> and had never done drugs. So now, a short time later, we go to Washington for her sister's, one of her sister's sons was having a bar mitzvah. And there is Woodward. And I come into the room and I see Woodward. And there's a whole bunch of people around. And his sister's introducing people around. And she says, oh, Bill, do you know uh, Bob Woodward? I said, yeah, I know him. He's a fucking liar. I said, Woodward... You are a fucking liar, aren't you? I said, you accused me of being a dope addict to her and to my now wife. Oh, no, I never said that. I never did that. And his sister tried to make nice of it and said, oh, he didn't say exactly that. That's not what he said. But I don't believe a word that Bob Woodward writes because of that. I know he's considered the great journalist, the guy who broke Watergate. I will tell you also that he wrote a book where he claimed to have a deathbed interview with William Casey. And I would bet a fortune that he did not have any interview with William Casey ever, who never gave a journalist an interview. And when he was on his deathbed, he had 24-hour security guards around the hospital room. His wife was there. They said that that book was never done as a, in an interview by Casey. So Woodward, who I know is considered America's journalist, I think is full of shit. As I know, he made up stuff about me. That's the only thing I can go by. Well, you could be saying that because you're high. Yeah. Yes, I could. It, it could be because I'm stoned <laughs> at saw this that, moment. You saw that hookah you brought in here. And all that shit I used to do with Belushi and his crowd Catches has up never with worn you, you off. Know. Yeah. But I thought that was, you know, that's my own particular. I've never said this publicly. I've never told this story publicly. I have privately uh, to people. And I have, of course, to Mr. Woodward himself. Well, on that well, note. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. Billy, thank you so much. Good to see it's, you guys. It's been great seeing around smoking dope. Of and, both uh, of yours. Oh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> loved, loved this conversation. It was great. Fantastic. Thanks, thank you. Thanks. And thank you, Don. Don. The recording engine. And our photographer. Our show was recorded in Hollywood, California, crossroads of the world. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made it. The views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or positions of the movies that made me, Trailers from Hell, Josh Olson, Joe Dante, Our Mothers, Our Fathers, or Dick Miller, who's finally making his obligatory cameo here.